0: Um, It might be helpful at this point just to give a quick overview. I'm, I'm doing this intentionally as we make our way through Revelation. So we'll really, over time, as we keep kind of rehearsing the structure of this book, that it will be kind of embedded in your mind and in your heart so that as you read it and study it in the future and contemplate all that God reveals here, that it will continue to encourage you. That is the purpose of the book of Revelation. Remember, the whole purpose is endurance, It's a call for the endurance of the saints, that those who were in those days suffering under persecution and difficulty should lift their eyes to the heavens and remember that Christ is returning to make all things new. And part of that making all things new includes judgment. And so as we've seen throughout the book of Revelation, really beginning in chapter 4 and 5, after the letters to the churches, we encounter two visions the chapter 4 vision is the vision of the Son of God, or sorry, the God the Father, God the Creator. And the chapter 5 vision is a chapter of, uh, the vision of the Son of God. And in the Son of God vision, we see uh, the Father having a scroll in His hand. And the Son of God comes and takes the scroll out of the Father's hand. And th- that scroll rep- is representative of God's plan for human history, His redemptive plan and His plan of judgment on human sin. And really, that's what the rest of the book of Revelation is about. From chapter 5 on, we get this series of visions. Now, we need to remember, Revelation is not a movie. Okay, It's not like a chronological history. It's more like going to visit an art gallery, where you look at one picture, and you see another picture, and those two pictures may not necessarily relate to each other in any sort of chronological way, but they each capture a different idea. And so that's what we're doing in Revelation. We're visiting an art gallery, not watching a movie. And this art gallery pictures different visions that God is rece- or God is giving to the apostle John to write down and pass down to the churches. And the first vision that we really see after the vision of the scroll is this idea of seven seals, the, the seals of the scroll beginning to to unfold. And in those in that in that unfolding of the the vision of the seals, we see these temporal judgments that God is going to carry out throughout human history until Christ returns. Then after we see the vision of the seven seals in chapter six and chapter seven, in between the sixth and seventh seal, we are given a reminder to the church that the church is safe in the midst of all this. The church needs not fear because it has been marked by God and set apart for God and sealed by God in chapter eight. As we get into the book of Revelation, we see this second cycle of judgments called the seven trumpets which come in the middle of chapter 8 and continue on through chapter 9. And these are patterned after the seven seals. It's the same idea. It's just ramped up in intensification. It's viewing God's judgments from another angle. When we hit chapter 10, similar to what we have in chapter 7, we have an interlude. Between the sixth seal and the seventh seal, you have chapter 7. Between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet, you have chapters 10 and 11. And chapters 10 and 11 give us a vision of what the church's responsibility is. In chapter 7, the church is safe and secure. In chapter 10 and 11, the church is called to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. That will not be without challenge, as chapters 12 through 14 reveal. Because chapter 12 through 14 gives us the behind the scenes of what's going on in the demonic realm to seek to stop the advancement of the gospel. As we see the unholy trinity wage its war against the church and against the Lamb. But we are not to be discouraged by that because as we saw last week at the end of chapter 14, there will be a great harvest at the end of the age. The righteous will go to heaven, the, the new heavens and the new earth, and the, the, the wicked will be consigned to hell along with the unholy trinity of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. So that brings us to chapter 15 and 16. We are going to cover two chapters today because again, it's, another, it's the third of three final cycles of judgment. We had the seven seals... We have the seven trumpets, now we have the seven bowls. And again, these are patterned after God's judgment on Egypt in the plagues. Remember, you had three cycles of three in Exodus of judgments, nine total judgments over three cycles. While this doesn't necessarily have nine total, the pattern is similar. The, 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 the intensification happens in the plagues on Egypt, and so the intensification happens in these seven bowls. And these bowls are the final judgment. We read about that in verse 1 of chapter 15. Then John says, I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. So these bowls are especially intense. We'll see how in a few moments. But they are really designed to picture God's final judgment on the world. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. I've called the uh, sermon Apocalypse Now and Later. Because the reality is, is God's judgments are coming now, but they will also come in a much greater way later. So three truths about the wrath of God that we're going to consider this morning as we make our way through these two chapters. Here's the first one. The wrath of God is horrible. The wrath of God is horrible. Now, as I already said in Revelation 5 we read about the scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And we've already described what those seals contained. The first four had to do with the judgments on the earth, persecution, war, economic disaster, death by sword, famine and disease, and martyrdom. And then the sixth seal announces the final judgment to come with its arrival opening in the seventh seal, as we see in Revelation chapter 8. And just as there are seven seals... On the scroll, so we encounter seven trumpets in Revelation 8 and 9, and again in chapter 11. The first four trumpets cover the entirety of the created order, earth, oceans, fresh water, and the sky. And with each trumpet judgment, only a third of the designated realm is affected. These are not, in other words, pictures of the final judgment or total judgment, the kind we see when Christ returns, but they are limited judgments that are, will fall upon the earth throughout this age. The fifth and the seventh trumpets, or the fifth through the seventh trumpets, are called woes in Revelation 8 because they are all focused on the effects of judgment upon humanity. Whereas the first five really focus on, or first four rather, focus more on the uh, earth itself and the created order. The last of the three trumpets, of the seven trumpets, focus more on humanity. The fifth trumpet judgment is one that afflicts only unbelievers and therefore probably one of inner turmoil and despair. The sixth trumpet unleashes angels who kill a third of mankind, showing us again that these judgments are not comprehensive, they're not final. And then the seventh trumpet brings with it the arrival of the kingdom of God in its fullness, where we read in Revelation 11, 15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. After this comes the final judgment. So we encounter this third cycle of judgments beginning in chapter 15 and moving through chapter 16. Now I'm going to walk through chapter 16, and again, you'll see parallels between the seals and the trumpets as well in these bowls, and that's intentional on the part of God for these visions for the Apostle John and for us. So let's read as we go, and I'll I'll make a few comments as we go through chapter 16. Then John says, chapter 16, verse 1, I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Now the seven bowls are clearly patterned after the seven seals and the seven trumpets. The first four bowls exactly match the realms of the created order that the first trumpets first four trumpets were designed to attack. Notice verse 2. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, similar to what the trumpet judgment did, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. And then in verse 3, we see the oceans being affected. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea." And then we see fresh water being affected in verses 4 through 7. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, "'Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you have brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve.'" And I heard the altar saying, "'Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments.'" In verse 8 and 9, we read about the sky being affected. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the, the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. And then verses 10 and 11, we read about the fifth bowl, which is like the fifth trumpet, centering on the anguish of those who do not trust in Jesus. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth bowl in verses 12 through 16 matches the sixth trumpet and begins at the river Euphrates and is also focused on the destructiveness of war. It says in verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up. "...to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demon spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed." And they assembled then at the place... That is in Hebrew is called Mount Megiddo or Armageddon. Now, again, I know all this sounds strange. It's, it's apocalyptic literature, it's intended to evoke symbolism and raise our imaginations. And what does all this sound like? If you read the Bible, what does this sound like? Frogs and blood and judgment. Egypt. The plagues on Egypt. So it's a symbol it's symbolic language that is designed to evoke in the people of God the final judgment is going to be like the plagues that God sent on Egypt only far worse far far worse okay we're not to get all bogged down in the details like what what in the world what are these unclean spirits how are they, what do they look like frogs and why are they coming out of the unholy trinity's mouth and what does that mean is that russia We're not supposed to go there, okay? We're supposed to. Now, I know Putin's in here somewhere. You know, that, sometimes we think that way. But we need to realize that this is symbolic language and we're supposed to, to, to allow it to, to give us a picture of things. So, kids, there's lots of stuff you can be drawing this morning, right, from those things. Um, whew, some horrific and horrible things, no doubt. But um, you draw them up and, and show them to me after the service and I'll see what you got. Look at verses 17 through 21. This, is, this wraps up the chapter, and uh, this is where we read about the final judgment being brought. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the Great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. Brothers and sisters, while the bowls are similar to the trumpets, and that each judgment is in the same kind of creational realm, showing that this world is under God's judgment, there is a profound dissimilarity between what we read about in the trumpets and what we read about in the bowls, and it has to do with the severity of the judgment. In distinction from the seven trumpets, with the seven bowls, we've left the realm of the partial and limited judgments of God, and we've arrived to the total and the final. As we saw, the seven trumpets affected only a limited portion of the world and its inhabitants, but there's no such restriction when it comes to the seven bowls. Just listen In verse 3, with the second bowl, every living thing died that was in the sea. In verse 4, the third bowl turns all fresh water, rivers, and springs into blood. In verses 8 and 9, when the fourth bowl is poured out, the sun becomes supercharged with scorching heat. In the fifth bowl, the whole world is plunged into darkness and leads unbelievers into deep darkness anguish and misery, without the limitation that's seen in the fifth trumpet. Remember in Revelation 9-5, it was for five months. That's a symbolic for a limited period of time. This has no such restriction placed upon it. The sixth bowl, like the sixth trumpet, brings war to the earth, but it does so as it assembles the kings of the whole world for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. This is the battle of Armageddon, a symbolic battle that will end with the final triumph of Christ over all his enemies on the last day. And finally, you see the seventh bowl, very clearly patterned after the seventh trumpet, is described in such a way that it can only refer to the full and final manifestation of the wrath of God. We read in Revelation 16:17, a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. Babylon, representing all the enemies of God's people, is made to drink the cup of the wine of the fury of God's wrath to the full. And when the seventh bowl is poured out, the time of God's patience is finished. The seven bowls are not from the perspective of a suffering church, like the seals were, or from the unbelieving world, like the trumpets were, but from the throne of God as a final manifestation of His eternal judgment. Brothers and sisters, the wrath of God is horrible. It's horrible. Over and over and over again in the seals and the trumpets and the visions and bowls in this book, we are seeing the wrath of god toward human sin and the judgment of god toward sinners being graphically and frighteningly portrayed and illustrated people are hiding themselves in the caves calling rocks and mountains to fall on them can you imagine that to be to rather be crushed under a mountain than to have to deal with god that's the preference People are tormented by killer locusts and horses with fire from their mouths and terror from their tails. People are punished with fire and sulfur in such a way that smoke rises from their pain. Now hear hundred-pound hailstones falling on people? Isn't this a little much? I mean, we're like reading a horror movie here. I mean... Isn't this a little bit much, God? A little bit much to do all this for little human beings and their little sins? Really, little sins. Second point, God's wrath is reasonable. God's wrath is reasonable. Now, I know if I were to take this text and just read it on a street corner in the United States, I would not get pats on the back. And you wouldn't either. What are you, some sort of hellfire and brimstone preacher? What's wrong with you? Sorry, just reading the Bible. Didn't read it without comment. And most people hearing this are going to think, that is ludicrous. I can't believe you even believe that kind of stuff. What's wrong with you? You need to be locked away in an institution. You aren't safe for society if you're walking around believing stuff like that. But I want to show you in the second point that God's wrath is entirely reasonable for two reasons first of all because of god's holiness and second of all because of our sinfulness first because of god's holiness look at chapter 15 verse 3 let's get a vision of who our god is who the one we are really sinning against really is god is above all we read in verse 15 chapter 15 verse 3 they sing the song of moses the servant of god the song of the lamb saying great and amazing are your deeds o lord god the almighty God is in control of everything, brothers and sisters. He is sovereign over the past, the present, the future. He is sovereign over the sun and the moon and the stars and the skies and the seas. He's sovereign over every animal, every man and woman on the earth. He is sovereign over Satan, the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, and every other demonic spirit. He is sovereign over the persecuted and the persecutors. He is sovereign over suffering. He's sovereign over death. From beginning to end, God is in control. And because He is in control, and he, because He is overall, He deserves to be revered. Great and amazing, verse 4. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify Your name? Lots of people. But it shouldn't be that way. The right response to the greatness and the glory of God is Psalm 86, 9, and 10. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, O Lord. They will bring glory to your name, for you do great and marvelous deeds. You alone are God. Isaiah 45, 22 paints the real response. I am God and there is no other to me. Every knee shall bow. Not only is God to be revered, He's worthy of all glory. Again, we see this in verse 4. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? We read of this several times in Revelation. Revelation 19.1, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Revelation 19.5, praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him small and great. Revelation 9.6, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him glory. Also, He's holy. We see this in verse 4 as well. For you alone are holy. That is, He's radically set apart from this world. He's without error, without sin, without equal. He's completely separate and utterly pure. Untouched by sin. Intolerable of sin. He stands above the world in absolute holiness. And He's absolutely righteous. We read in verse 4 again, all the nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. Psalm 145 verse 7, the Lord is just in all His ways. In other words, all God's ways are right. His judgment is fair and good, and just, and right. We should, if we're in our right minds, and we know God and His glory and His greatness, we should read Revelation 15, in light of mankind's sin against God, we should say, absolutely. Absolutely. He never judges wrongly. Never. And in the end, Revelation is saying, this will all be clear. After the final judgment of man, we will not come away with unanswered questions like, was that really just? Or was that really fair? No, on that day, everyone will say, God is just. God is fair. And God absolutely, always, fully, finally, and eternally made the right call. We know that because of God's holiness. But secondly, God's wrath is reasonable because of man's sinfulness. These bowls in Revelation 16, along with the seals and trumpets and visions even in the letters graphically depict the depravity or sinfulness of man. The rebellion and wickedness of men and women upon the earth is on full display even in Revelation 16. Let me just give you three verses. Revelation 16 verse 9. You can look at these if you want. They're all out of chapter 16. Revelation 16 9. They cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give Him glory. Same thing in verse 11. They cursed... The God of heaven. Verse 21, they cursed God. Brothers and sisters, this is why this judgment is just. They curse God. I, I can't even tell you the things they would say. But you know what cursing is. This is deliberate slandering of the name of God. The God alone who alone deserves all glory and honor and praise in all the universe from all nations... We mock. When God pours out judgment, just judgment, on guilty men and women, we say, that's not fair, that's not right, that's not just. That's cursing God. That's mocking God. We're like unquestionably guilty murderers or rapists, robbers or thieves who, upon hearing the sentence of our guilt from the bench, say, Who do you think you are, Judge? I'm right. You're the one that's wrong. I'm not. You go to jail. By nature, brothers and sisters, this is all of mankind. We resent God's sovereignty. Now, sometimes we resent it in kind of passive ways. You know, we're not all fighting God with our fists. Most people aren't. They're just casually living their lives ignoring Him, which is cursing God. Because it's saying, you're not worthy of my time, you're not worthy of my attention, you're not worthy of my devotion, you're not worthy of two seconds of my day. And that's what most people live like. And they do that day after day after day after day while God gives them breath to live for His glory, and they don't do it. Because to live for His glory means to, my life exists to make Him great. Everything I do, I want people to see how great God is. That's the purpose of our lives. And so you see how vile it is to live a life that ignores God because it tells everybody he's not important, he's not important, he's not significant, you can ignore him, I do, join me in ignoring him. That's what we do when we do nothing. We're just passively resigned to living for the glory of ourselves. And that, again, is an affront to God's glory because it's saying that we deserve, even though he's made us for his glory, I'm going to live my life for my own glory. Thank you very much. So by nature, we assert our independence from him. We turn aside from his authority. We assert ourselves in his place. We offer allegiance to other gods instead, whether it's ourselves, our money, our possessions, our success, sex, worldly pleasures, worldly pursuits, superficial religion, self-centered living. These are the things we give our allegiance to instead of God. Brothers and sisters, here's the truth. By nature, all of our hearts are like Pharaoh's heart. Even despite God's judgments toward our sin, even despite the harmful effects of sin on this world, we still do not fear God and give Him glory. Just as with plague after plague after plague in the book of Exodus, Pharaoh refused to fear God and repent over and over again in these bowls, the Bible says people curse God and they didn't repent. There's no fear of God before their eyes. The clear conclusion is unavoidable. Because of God's holiness and because of our sinfulness, The wrath of God expressed in these chapters is not only horrible, but it's reasonable. We are infinitely deserving of God's eternal wrath. If God is infinitely and eternally glorious, infinitely and eternally holy, infinitely and eternally just, and infinitely and eternally love, then our sin is infinitely and eternally offensive to Him. One sin against God is an infinite offense against God and infinite punishment is deserved. Realize this. Don't miss this. The measure of sin is determined by the magnitude and worth of the one who is sinned against. That's how we measure the wickedness of sin. If we think, I walk around and I kick a clump of dirt over, and I go, oh, I sinned greatly against the earth there. Nobody thinks that. Because it's it's insignificant. It's small. It's not effective. But when we compare that to God then we realize the measure of sin is determined by the magnitude of the one who sinned against. How about us? Are we severely underestimating the seriousness of our sin against God? We all likely are to some degree. We wouldn't willfully sin if we didn't. Which is why we need words like this to remind us of the sinfulness of sin. Here's how John Piper describes what sin is. He says, sin is the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the promises of God not believed, the commandments of God not obeyed, the wrath of God not respected, the justice of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved. That's sin. J.I. Packer summarizes it well when he says, God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. Brothers and sisters, when we hurl insults at our wives, when we refuse to listen to our parents, when we provoke our children, we rebel against God. When we deceive our boss about when our project will be done, when we take six inches of our neighbor's yard for our garden, or we fail to report all the income to the IRS, we proclaim the great deceiver. When we sow division among brothers and sisters here at Heritage, when we fantasize about another woman's husband or manhandle your kids, your obscenities echo across the heavens. We do and say things that leave people devastated. We deceive our parents, verbally attack our friends, harbor bitter grudges, are unfaithful to our promises, you and I regularly shatter the glory of God intended to shine from this planet. And in the same moment, we shatter any hope of relationship with such a glorious person. Do you know why we have a hard time comprehending the worship of God in His wrath? Because instead of a high view of God, we got a low view of God. And instead of a humble view of ourselves, we got a high view of ourselves. We think of ourselves as basically good, Nice, kind, deserving, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ten thousand chances. Man is lovable with a right to independence from God, worthy of forgiveness from God and warranting happiness from God no matter how we treat God. But the reason why people get the idea of hell and wrath is because they want, or sorry, the reason why people get rid of the idea of the idea of hell and wrath, is because they want a loving God. They say, my God's not like that. My God's a God of love. They say, I can't believe in hell and wrath because I want a more loving God. But brothers and sisters, I want to tell you something this morning. If you get rid of the idea of hell and wrath, you have a less loving God than the God of the Bible. Because if there is no wrath by God on sin and there is no such thing as hell, not only does that actually make what happened to Jesus inexplicable, if you don't believe in wrath and hell, it trivializes what Christ did. If you get rid of a God who has wrath and hell, you got a God who loves us in general, but not as a God of the Bible, the God of Jesus Christ, who loves us with a costly love that's way more loving. Look at what it cost! Look at what He did! Look at what he was taking on the cross. You get rid of wrath and hell, he's taking nothing. Not anywhere close to this. But brothers and sisters, for us who believe, Jesus is drinking in Revelation 15 and 16 on the cross for us. That's what's happening. And therefore, what we do is if we want a... God of no wrath and no hell, then what we've done is we've just turned His incredible act of love into something that's very small and very trivial. And that, again, is to curse Him. So let me conclude with some good news. All right? Number three, the wrath of God is avoidable. We've seen the wrath of God. It's horrible. It's reasonable, but it's avoidable. Look at 15, verse 2. We have a group of people standing without harm on the sea of glass... They stand because they've conquered the beast and the number of his name. Now, the question is, how do they conquer? Verse two. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. So, there are people here who, in the midst of this ravaging judgment, are standing in the presence of God and singing his glory. Who are those people? That's us! That's the people of God who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, who have rested in His blood for atonement for their sin and had their sins washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. The good news, brothers and sisters, is that God has made a way to show us mercy and absorb His own wrath against our sin. God sent a child, His Son, Christ Jesus, born of a woman who lived a righteous life of obedience to God on this earth, and then died a sacrificial death for sinners on the cross. This is the message of Christianity. This is what the cross of Christ is all about. Why is the cross so significant? Why is the cross of Christ the central event of Revelation and all of human history? Because at the cross, God expressed His wrath towards sin. He poured out His righteous judgment on sin. And at the same time, He endured His own wrath in the person of His Son against our sin. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath in our place so that we will never have to drink it. And in this, at the cross, God has enabled salvation for sinners. One writer said, the cross demonstrates with equal vividness both God's justice in judging sin and God's mercy in justifying the sinner. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Him, Jesus Christ, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. There is no greater news in the world than this. We stand before a holy God in our sin, deserving of holy, eternal wrath, and yet God has sent His Son in our place as our substitute. He lived the life we couldn't live. He died the death we deserve to die. He conquered the enemy of sin, Satan, and death that we couldn't conquer so that in Christ we would conquer. So two concluding applications then. For those of us who are not yet followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, I appeal to you this morning, repent and receive the mercy of God now before it's too late. For those who do not have saving faith in Jesus Christ, these trials are in fact judgments from the Lord. And a lot of the judgments in this age are limited. But this final judgment will not be. And this is intended for you to be a wake-up call to be a foretaste of a greater judgment still to come. Boys and girls, I hope you're scared when you read things like this. But I don't want you to be paralyzed in your fear. I want you to be scared so that you'll run to Jesus, who will freely receive you and accept you and delightfully take away this future from you and give you His future. Hear the words of Revelation 16, 15. Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Do we know when a thief's going to come? Do you know? If we did, we wouldn't have a thief, would we? (laughs) But what's the point? If you know a thief's coming, you get prepared. You don't go to sleep. You don't continue on with business as usual. You act. You're alert. You're watchful. You set up security cameras. You get out the shotgun. Whatever it takes, right, to defend your family, defend yourself. You're watchful. You don't know when the thief is going to come, but you do know he will come. So unbelievers who are not yet yet followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, I appeal to you, come to Christ today. One day you're going to stand in the presence of your Creator, the triune God of Scripture, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What will be your plea? What will be your hope? With what will you be clothed? Your own righteousness? your own good works, your good intentions? Do you believe that anything you do in this life is sufficient to secure yourself a place in His eternal kingdom? Do you honestly believe that the forgiveness of your sins will come based on your collective efforts to be good? No. Everyone will stand in God's presence, and Christians, brothers and sisters, we will do clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and that can be everyone's here this morning. Today, before you leave this building, you can be finally and forever clothed in the only righteousness that will avail in the presence of an infinitely holy God. Hear the words of the Apostle Paul where he says his desire was to be found in him that is in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. That can be yours. It depends on faith. It doesn't depend on your works, your righteousness, your law keeping. That won't pass the test. But Christ's righteousness will. The Apostle Paul knew it. Jesus Christ worked it out. Receive it. Now, for those of us who are holding on to Jesus, believers, Christians, I want you to see something. Even though we have to go through so much difficulty, so many trials, so many tribulations in this life, These sufferings will never, ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. These trials come from the hand of God who in the midst of them is keeping you near to himself. Listen, without this knowledge, it can overwhelm us. But with this knowledge, knowing God's power, knowing his purpose to keep, keep us, we can confidently look into the future and say, all is well and all will be well. Revelation shows us that God has not abandoned us, but rather that the day of salvation is drawing nearer and nearer and nearer. And all the sins against you, all the sins against Christ's church will be punished. And one day, that means we can live lives of love for our enemies. We don't have to pay anybody back. We lay our lives down for people. We are willing to die for them even as they seek to kill us. Because we know our our future is secure. And Christ is will judge vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So we know that all our troubles that we have to endure they're all part of God's perfect and loving plan for us, a plan that brings all glory to him and will result in an eternity of goodness for us because when we see him and we'll get here in a few weeks, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death will be no more and neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things will have passed away. Let's praise his name and pray together. Father, how grateful we are to you for both the horrible revelation of your wrath, but also the wonderful revelation of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who because of his life and his death and his victorious resurrection has conquered death and sin and the wrath that we deserve so that we could one day dwell even right now possess the eternal life that we will one day enjoy in fullness when you come again or we go to be with you so lord encourage our hearts this day may you move in the hearts of any here this morning who are yet outside of the lord jesus christ who have yet to come to him in humble trust who have yet to give their sins to him who have yet to say jesus i want to live for you be my lord be my savior You are the king. You are the one my life exists for. And I want to live boldly and proudly and by your grace for you. I want to plant my flag in the ground and say I belong to Jesus Christ. Come hell or whatever else, he is mine and I am his. Lord, grant that faith. Impart that hope and confidence to all of us this morning as we pray in the name of our conquering king, our resurrected savior, and our soon coming Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.